Hey, welcome to Whitefields Community Church Missions Extra. I'm joined today by Pastor Ben Morrison. Ben shared the message for us this past Sunday. Now, we usually do a sermon extra, uh, but this week we're going to combine our sermon extra and our missions extra. And I'm going to have Ben just kind of uh, share with us a little bit about his ministry and about his story of how he got into being a missionary in Ukraine. If you haven't done so yet, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube page. Uh, Just click that button to subscribe. If you click the notification button, you'll get notified whenever we post any new content. And of course, uh, check us out. This is also podcasted. So if you're a podcast listener, make sure to go over and uh, subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you prefer. We're on all the main ones, Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, all those good places. Uh, But wherever you listen, you'll be able to find us. Make sure you subscribe. And if you'd leave us a rating, that would really help to uh, help other people find this gospel-centered content that we're trying to put out, answering people's questions, really inspiring people in this case, inspiring people to step into what God has for them in their lives in regard to engaging in his mission and being part of it. It's a big part of our ethos as a church, and we support many missionaries. Ben's one of them. So Ben uh, is great. We've known each other. How long have we known each other? When did you move back from Hungary? I moved to Colorado in 2012, but I actually know when we first met. 2009, maybe? 2009, 10. That's right. So I was in Hungary. You were in Ukraine. And, um, and we met at different things, different conferences and stuff like that, and uh, had a lot in common. Indeed. And, um, you know, same heart for the Lord and same heart for the mission of God. And so it's been good partnering. You've spoken over here. I've spoken over there. And um, so, Ben, maybe you could tell our viewers who don't know you, like I do, um, about your ministry, just kind of in a nutshell. What is it that you do? I know you have a couple things you're involved in. So right, go ahead. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, first and foremost, I'm a church planner, lead pastor of Calvary Chapel, Sweet Lavotsk, which is a smaller town in central Ukraine. Uh, I've been there for 16 years now um, in Ukraine total for almost 20 at this point. Um, so we moved there, planted a church. Um, I'm still the lead pastor of that church. Um Besides that, um, for the last uh, four or so years, I've been the coordinator of a ministry called City to City Ukraine. Uh, City to City is, it's an affiliate of Redeemer City to City, which was started by Tim Keller uh, to help see church planning movements in key cities throughout the world. Um, So that's been going since 2016. Uh, We offer various training, coaching, uh, across a broad network of, of evangelical leaders um, to see new churches planted in the key cities of Ukraine. Uh, we have sort of a, a vision and a dream uh, that we're working towards, which is to see 100 new churches planted by 2030 uh, in the key cities of Ukraine. So by God's grace, we're, we're on our way towards that. Um, already training now the third group of church planners, which will bring us up to 30. Um, so yeah, so that would be one thing. And then, and then kind of Partially together with that, I also serve as the training coordinator for City to City Europe. Um, so kind of doing the same thing, but on the, the continent-wide level uh, to see movements of the gospel in the key cities of Europe. Cool. Well, Ben, maybe tell us a little bit about how you came to be a missionary in Ukraine. I mean, how does one become a missionary? I, I know how I became a missionary, but uh, again, this is for our viewers and listeners to, who are thinking, you know, how does, how does somebody, where are you from? What took place in your life that got you to this point? Right, right. 
Um, so I uh, kind of, I guess, started my journey uh, of missions. I was going to Bible college uh, in um, my basically home city of Indianapolis. Uh, part of the program was that we had a missions practicum at the end of each academic year, and we didn't we didn't choose where we went. So the first year, um, we actually went to Nicaragua, and uh, I ended up staying longer than the rest of the group. I stayed for the whole summer, really just fell in love with it, um, just kind of the whole cross-cultural missions thing. I was ready to not move back, uh, you know, at, at 18 years old or whatever it was, um, but, you know, kind of was convinced through talking with my parents, my Bible college director, to come back, finish Bible college first. Uh, so the second year we went to Ukraine. Um, and it was, it was sort of the same thing where I ended up staying for the whole summer, you know, really just, just loved it, fell in love with the culture, uh, particularly at that point in Ukraine's history, kind of it was still, still riding the wave of post-Soviet, um, you know, people's just, just really impressive openness to the gospel in my mind. Um, so, you know, that was, that was certainly attractive. And uh, yeah, so long story short, I just, I, I came back, I had one semester left of Bible college after that. Um, and I was there, I, I stayed that summer with one other guy I stayed for a longer time as well with me, one of my good friends. And when we came back, you know, I only had a semester of Bible college left and he would, he would ask, he's like, you know, so what are you going to do after this? And he knew that, you know, my heart was for missions. And I'm like, I don't know, you know, I'm praying, um, you know, and he, he would ask, you know, so, so what if you didn't have to pray? What would you do? And I was like, I'd go to Ukraine. He's like, then don't pray, just go. I was like, thank you for that very spiritual advice. It's kind of weird advice, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, a, a little bit later, this is really getting up towards, you know, the point of graduation. Uh, November, I believe it was, we had sort of a prayer, praise and worship evening uh, for, for the college age ministry there at our church. And uh, really just felt the Lord impress on my heart that, you know, I needed to, you know, decide what's next. Because the fact that I didn't know was really distracting me from what I had in front of me. You know, so I was, I was kind of open and, you know, said, all right, Lord, you know, where, where am I going? You know, what's the direction? And really felt released that, you know, any of these options, because I had invitations to kind of come back to Nicaragua, to come back to Ukraine. And then I was also involved at the time with uh, both the college ministry and high school ministry in my church uh, in Indianapolis, really to kind of go in any one of those directions and the Lord would bless it. Um, you know, and so at that point, uh, what my friend, you know, would say, like, if you, if, if it was up to you, basically, right, um, what would you choose? And I knew that it was Ukraine. So I'm like, all right, Lord, if it's, if it's up to me, then it's Ukraine. Um, you know, and then after that, you know, there was various ways that God kind of began confirming that that was, that was really, you know, his direction. So that was November, um, finished up Bible college and moved to Ukraine in, uh, January of 2002 and have not moved back since. So coming up on 20 years now. Yeah. I moved to Hungary the same month. Right. Yeah. We had, we had a lot of those little weird idiosyncrasies yeah. in common. Yeah. You know, what's funny about that, the whole idea of just kind of like, you know, that's something that people have said before. And I think there's, there's a degree of, um, validity to it. Cause, okay. So the saying is like, love the Lord, your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then do whatever you want. And, and of course that is meant to be a punchy statement, right? but the idea is that if you're loving the Lord, he's going to be putting his desires into your heart and leading you and the, what you want will be to glorify God. Yeah. And in many cases, God's going to direct you through that. 
I think that's a really, really important principle. Yeah, sure. Uh, sure. On the other hand, uh, you know, it's funny. For me personally, you know, I have family. Uh, my family's from Ukraine, and my mom's side. And so I, uh, if it was me and where, you know, if you didn't have to pray and you could just go somewhere, where would you go? I would have said Ukraine too. This is the irony. I go. wanted to go to Ukraine. And the doors all kind of closed, mm. but there was this amazing open door in Hungary. Right, right. And so I moved to Hungary with this thought, okay, I'm going to move to Hungary, and then... Sneak across the border. Someday, <laughs> I'm going to work my way over to where I really want to be, which is in Ukraine. But then, that was just God's way of getting me to Hungary. Right, Because, right. of course, I was so happy there and so great, you know, yeah. like, very meaningful ministry. All that to say... Uh, I, I want to touch on one thing you said, just that there was an amazing openness at that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could talk about what it's like now, but I can also say this, that this is what I always tell people about Eastern Europe particularly, mm-hmm. but I'd say uniquely Hungary, Romania, and Ukraine. Maybe there's other places too, but I know those places. And that there's still an incredible openness. That, um, you know, we, we often hear all this stuff about how Christianity is dying in Europe. That's that's a skewed version of the story. It's not sure. the whole information. Yeah. Because Europe is not just like monolithic. Like Definitely not. There's different countries, even within countries, different regions that are having whole different things. And you also have different age groups. Mm-hmm. And you have the historical churches versus right. new movements. And yeah. I just think that I told someone this earlier this week and today that it the situation in Eastern Europe is very much a uh, harvest is plentiful, workers are few situation. Like you're saying, hey, to plant 100 churches, I think you guys are going to need some church planters. And I know that you're involved in training them. Right. My point is we need workers. And you guys, I'm looking at you now, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send workers into his mission field. And you know what? I would even challenge you to say, to pray about maybe, maybe it's you. Or maybe you're going to be involved in some meaningful way. Um, George Markey, common friend of ours, mm-hmm. also a missionary we support, uh, he told me something that I just, it's in my mind all the time. He said, the, the only thing hindering us from planting churches in Ukraine is we don't have enough church planters. We could plant as many churches as we want. And um, we just don't have the people. So pray to Lord of the Harvest to send workers into the mission field. Um, I think there's still an incredible openness. Yeah, yeah, sure. I would agree with that. Um, You know, and like you said, Europe is not a monolith. Um, I think when people think about, you know, post-Christian Europe, um, a a lot of that goes back to the historic Protestant churches, right, that are, you know, maybe maybe to some extent similar with like some of the mainline churches right here in the U.S., uh, where there is a, a steep decline in growth. Um, but then you have other churches that are, you know, solidly gospel-centered, um, you know, evangelical, uh, not in any political sense of that term, but, you know, uh, doctrinally. And, and a lot of these are actually growing. Yeah. Um, you know, with Eastern Europe, which you've mentioned, um, I think it's interesting because, you know, very different than, than Northern and Western Europe, uh, Eastern Europe is not, it is in a sense perhaps post-Christian, but it's also post-atheist, uh, right? Because it was under the Soviet Union or satellites of the Soviet Union for 70 plus years. Um, you know, so you'll, it's interesting in Christian countries, you'll find, you know, num- 
historically Christian countries, right? You'll find lots of nominal Christians who's, who kind of say, like, well, I was born here. You know, I'm, I guess I'm kind of a Christian, but it doesn't mean a lot. Um, in, in Ukraine, at least, and, you know, a lot of the former Soviet Union anyway, you'll find nominal atheists mm. who uh, say, you know, well, this is what I was raised <laughs> under, right? I was, I was, I mean, that's, you know, whatever the default worldview is, yes. you're always going to find a lot of nominal adherence to that worldview. Yeah. So, you know, you'll find people of the older generation, like my in-laws, my wife is Ukrainian, so like my in-laws, um, you know, my, my father-in-law once said, you know, I might be an atheist, but I'm an, an Eastern Orthodox atheist, yeah. <laughs> you know? So like, it's like, well, I'm an, orth- an atheist, but I pray from time to time, yeah. um, you know? So, so it is an interesting, uh, interesting kind of milieu. Yeah, to me, you know, cause Hungary had uh, a lot of similar communist influences, really, you know, trying to promote atheism. Right. And so it, that's what I always tell people is really different over there is that the older generation are the atheists and the younger right. generation are much more open yeah. to not only theism, but even Christianity. Sure. And uh, I always found this to be really interesting. Mm-hmm. The whole dynamic is different. Whereas here oh, yeah. we think, oh, it's those darn kids getting into that atheism. Right, right. And, uh, and, that, and that's a little more similar towards like kind of Northern Europe and, yeah. you know, further Western Europe that has, has never come under like this strong ideology of, you know, communism, yeah. atheism. Um, so. you, you know what? I, I, this is one thing I remember, though in Hungary is that you'd meet a lot of these people. And like you're saying, Eastern Orthodox atheist, I'd meet a lot of people who were atheists. It's like they had been trained to be atheists in practice, mm-hmm. but not necessarily in their heart. And, sure. uh, they would even refer to themselves as materialists. I'm like, can you, can you hear the words coming out of your mouth? You're, you're just saying materialist. Like it's like a great thing. And that's actually what they were taught is right. that, this is what it means to be an atheist. You're a materialist, meaning this material world is all you care about. But in many of them, I mean, I think when you get into existential conversations, I found that the, like you're saying, nominal atheists, these people aren't, uh, their hearts aren't in it in many cases. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think at the end of the day, that's simply because, uh, you know, that worldview just can't provide the answers Mm -hmm. that, 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 you know, really all humans end up asking, which is, you know, origin, meaning, ultimate destination. It's like there's really not not a lot of answers within the atheist worldview, materialistic worldview. Um, you know, I mean, a, a best case scenario, you kind of come up with your own, but you, you sort of know that it's just something you've made up. Yeah, um, man. Yeah. Okay, so that's related to my next question, which is tell us about some of the challenges you face uniquely in Ukraine? I mean, what are some of the challenges to preaching the gospel, pastoring a church, et cetera, that are unique to that place? Right. Um, I mean, I guess I would say as far as unique, at least in contrast with, you know, North America, um, the Eastern Orthodox background, which again, something like 70% of, of Ukrainians would identify themselves as Eastern Orthodox, and then maybe another you know, nine or 10% as, as what they call Greek or, uh, Greek Catholic. So it's Eastern Rite Catholic, um, you know, which has some differences, but there's a lot of similarities. Uh, so that's a, that's an overwhelming majority of the population. Uh, so that can actually be both a help and a hindrance, uh, despite the fact that you are starting to run into a lot of kind of, you know, sort of post post atheist and then also post Christian mindset among like the young generation. Um, nevertheless, there's a lot of people that still sort of at least hold these basic building blocks of, you know, there is a God, uh, there is some kind of, you know, 
the law of God. Now they might not be clear on what that is, but but there's some some understanding of judgment, right? Ultimate judgment. Um, you know, there's there's a concept of of forgiveness. You know, I mean, even even let's say on Easter, um, you know, everybody to the man to the woman. Uh, everybody on Easter, you know, greets one another, Christ is risen. And the answer is he is risen indeed. I mean, here that used to be standard practice. You know, now you'll find some people who do it. Even sometimes you'll find Christians that don't really do it. Um, But it's like there, it's like, that's just part of the cultural ingrained thing. So because it's part of the cultural fabric, um, it can sometimes lead to these open doors for conversations. It's like, well, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Well, is he risen indeed? <laughs> like, what is? It? Why are you saying that? And what does it mean? Yeah. Um, you know, at the same time, it can also be a hindrance because, and this I find more with the older generation that that would call themselves Christians, not the atheist ones, um, that would would basically respond like, you know, I already have my church, and you know, it's it's very much kind of it, it's all woven into the national identity and kind of you know, well, I can't. I can't even consider a slightly different approach to Christianity or a different understanding of the Bible because it would be a betrayal of not not my faith per se, but it would be a betrayal of my ancestors, uh, of my cultural heritage. So that can you know that can be a hindrance as well. Yeah, did they do that during communism? I mean, I wasn't there under communism, sure. so it's hard for me to say. Obviously, under communism, there were different periods. Um, so in the very beginning, you know, there was, there was a, there was a sort of an idea of like a little bit of freedom in that respect, but then really, especially under Stalin, I mean, it became very, you know, harsh persecution, you know, thousands of, you know, priests and and clergy sent to, to gulags and whatnot. Um, you know, after Stalin's days, it kind of started progressively bit by bit to get, you know, less oppressive, um, where then by the, towards the end of, of the Soviet Union, you already had, uh, you know, officially, not only the Eastern Orthodox Church was allowed, but also they allowed Protestants, which, you know, despite most people seeing that as sort of a cult, nevertheless, they allowed, um, I think under pressure from from U.S. politicians, allowed like one Protestant denomination, which was the Baptist denomination. Yeah. And so really, despite what other flavors of Christianity people believed, if they were Protestant, they were Baptist, mm-hmm. because that's the only one that was allowed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then after the fall of the Soviet Union, then things started to sort of break off into more, more uh, disparate groups. Um, so, yeah. Uh, well, I just, I know that in Hungary, and, and I know that actually in some cases, these Hungarian things were actually direct translations of Russian communist uh, things. And, and what I mean by that is they would basically take the cultural Christian things mm-hmm. and then try to rebrand them with oh, yeah. a communist mm-hmm. thing. So instead yep. of uh, St. Nicholas, you have... What is in Grandfather Frost? Grandfather Frost in Hungarian, he's called uh, Father Winter. Okay, but mm-hmm. um, but there are there are a bunch of those. So in mm-hmm. Hungary, we had this this guy who was a founder of Hungary, and he's actually a Catholic saint. His name's Saint Stephen. Actually, I'm not sure that he's actually a Catholic saint. I'd have to check in that. Maybe he is. Maybe our listeners. <laughs> I don't know. Somebody um, can comment. But you know, sometimes we refer to people as saints, and they're not actually Catholic saints. Okay. In this case, we refer to this guy as Saint. Istvan or Stephen, right, right. and he has this day, which is like the founding of the country, but the founding of the country as a Christian nation, right. which took place in 1001 AD. But under communism, they tried to change that holiday 
and they uh, changed it into uh, this holiday of like new bread, and it had something to do with like you know the workers and the peasants uh, doing this harvest thing, yeah. and they tried to basically downplay any of the cultural Christian things, yeah, and sometimes replace them with like a, a communist version, right. which in my opinion, tells you that there's a very religious undertone to the communism that existed in Eastern Europe. Yeah, that's fair. And it's actually a fascinating case study, I think. Um, you know, at least in the Soviet Union, one example is Christmas. So, you know, they wanted to, they wanted to obliterate Christmas, basically, yeah. because it's a Christian holiday, right? Um, you know, birth of Christ and all that. So the first attempt, they said, you know, we're just going to cancel it. Like, like no Christmas, <laughs> that didn't fly so well, right? Because right. people, they want their holiday and, you know, again, the religious undertones. And so what they ended up doing, and this was actually pretty shrewd on the part of the, uh, you know, Soviet higher ups, was they ended up kind of shifting all of these things to New Year's. Mm -hmm. So to this day, and this yeah. remains to this day, despite the fact that the Soviet Union is over, uh, we don't have a Christmas tree. We have a New Year's tree. Yeah. Right. People don't give Christmas gifts. They give New Year's gifts. Yeah. So basically what they did was they took all of the things, you know, but they, they shifted it. They kind of, if you will, they contextualized their atheism mm -hmm. to people's, you know, religious yeah. undercurrents. Uh, which is actually a fascinating study because it, it's, you know, it's presenting their worldview, but in, in a form that people can accept. Yeah. Right. Um, well, on that which note, we could go off on that, I guess. Well, but, on that note, just maybe yeah. say a few words, because as a missionary, you have to learn to contextualize. Now, some people, when they hear that word contextualization, maybe some of our watchers, listeners are like, I'm not 100% sure on what you're talking about. Right. Others of them are like uh, red flag and they're like, yep. uh-oh, you're changing Christianity mm -hmm. and that's bad. So what is contextualization? What would you say to those who are concerned that maybe it's something to be concerned about? Sure. Uh, so explain it for those who don't aren't 100% sure what it is and maybe also for those who might have uh, a concern because they're not exactly sure what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'll actually use, uh, you know, from, from Eastern European history an, an interesting example of this. So, so just quickly to define contextualization, um, you know, we could say that it's, you know, communicating the worldview, in this case Christianity, uh, in, in your context in a way that is understandable um, palatable, not in the sense that it, it just kind of, you know, kowtows to everything in the culture, but that it, it at least resonates with certain narratives in the culture um, to communicate your worldview. So again, back to historically, you know, uh, Ukraine, Ukraine was officially Christianized a little bit before Hungary. So I, I believe it was 988 AD. Um, but, but even before that, uh, there was these two saints, uh, um, Kirill and Methodius, right? So, uh, they're most well known for, you know, coming up with the Cyrillic from Kirill's name, uh, alphabet, because before that the Slavic peoples didn't have a written alphabet. They were missionaries who, uh, want, you know, were going to the Slavic peoples there, um, and wanted to be able to communicate. Uh, you know, the gospel wanted to be able to communicate the Bible, but they realized like these people aren't going to understand Latin. I mean, the language, the Slavic language wasn't even Latin based. And this was at a point, again, before any church split. So there was only one church, right? And Rome was kind of the center at that time. Well, Rome had already said long before that, you know, we don't translate the Bible. The Bible is only in Latin. That's it. But Kirill and Methodius actually went to the Pope to get permission 
to translate the Bible into, you know, this language that they'd created really uh, from, you know, from the spoken language, obviously of the Slavic peoples so that the Bible could be translated into this language. And once they did that, they were able to, you know, really proliferate the gospel. So in one sense, you could actually say contextualization is really just translation. It's not changing the essence of the message. It's changing, um, you know, the ways that you communicate it so that people can understand it. Um, you know, ultimately, the, the scriptural example, you could say, is, is, is in the end founding Christ himself, right? So the word became flesh, right? We, you know, that was way beyond our ability to comprehend. But Christ, you know, in his infinite love and, and compassion, you know, brought it down to a level we could understand. So that's really what contextualization is, is bringing the eternal gospel, not changing the essence in any way, uh, but bringing it in, into flesh, into a language that the, the context can understand. To put this in a terminology that our listeners can understand, yeah. okay. could we say that we're putting the cookies on the shelf where the kids can you, reach you them? You really could say that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that sounds like something I would say. It does. Yeah. And you just said it. I know. I said it to you earlier this week. <laughs> yeah. Um, ben, tell us about some of the needs that you you have as a uh, church and ministry there that our watchers and listeners can be praying for and uh, thinking about. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I guess there's a handful of needs I could mention. Um, so one would be, we've, I, I don't remember if I mentioned in the beginning or not. So we've recently just sent out uh, my associate pastor to plant a new church, uh, which we're excited about. Um, at the same time, you know, praying that the Lord would raise up new leaders, bring along, you know, another associate pastor. Um, so could certainly pray for that. Um, we have uh, been in the process of a building project for our church for the last five years. Uh, God has been faithful and, you know, has, has you know, in part used uh, your church, Nick Whitefields, to, to generously be part of that. Um, so we've actually been able to bring the building to a point where we've moved in now. We're using the new facility, but there's still a lot left to do. Um, you know, so could, could certainly pray that God would continue providing for that need. Um, as I mentioned with city to city, we have this goal of seeing a hundred, you know, gospel centered churches planted by 2030. Um, so certainly again, that's not going to happen unless it's the work of God's spirit. So, you know, just pray for that, pray for the right planters, um, to be raised up, to be connected with us. Um, you know, the, 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 the necessary, uh, you know, support for them would be there, um, yeah, I guess that would be would be a handful of prayer prayer requests. Awesome, thanks, Ben. Hey, one one kind of last question: What would you say? What advice would you give to somebody watching this video or listening to this podcast right now? And they're thinking, you know, I want to be involved in the mission of God in the world. I don't know if I does that mean I have to move across the world and you know read an alphabet that that looks weird to me? Does it mean that I need to? Um, do something radical? Like, what does it mean? Like, what advice would you give to somebody who wants to be involved and they don't, they aren't quite sure how to get started? Yeah, great question. Um, I mean, I guess I would say, first of all, uh, there's a difference between what at least recent historically has been defined as mission and missions, plural, which this is a missions extra, as I've learned. Uh, so mission singular, you know, sometimes is used to refer overall to God's mission in the world, right? His saving mission to bring a people to himself through Jesus Christ, uh, you know, to ultimately to, to redeem all of creation, to restore, um, you know, to get, unite under Christ's lordship. Uh, so that mission is everywhere and anywhere. I mean, that, you know, 
you don't have to think about like, well, if I'm not, if I'm not moving to another continent, then I'm not part of God's mission. No, uh, you're part of God's mission here and now, wherever you are, your workplace, your neighborhood, um, you know, and God wants to use you in that place. And, and really, I would say even before somebody starts considering like foreign field missions, um, you know, if you're not part of God's mission where you are now, you're probably not going to be part of God's mission anywhere else. Ben, are right? You, you got you to gotta use the doors that are open in front of you. Are you telling me that buying an airplane ticket is not going to change my heart? I know that's shocking. Yeah. I know that's shocking. I, I remember talking to somebody once. Yeah. And they were saying, as soon as I get to India, man, my devotional life's going to be better. I'm just going to be so dialed in to like sharing my faith. I'm like, but you, you're not doing those things. What right, do you, you think right. that geography is going to change that? If anything, it might make it harder. Yeah, but there is there is maybe a slight bit of truth to the fact that throwing yourself into a situation like that, um, Tim Keller actually says, is that being in full-time ministry will either make you a much better Christian or a much worse Christian. Um, you know, that either because you will find yourself desperate for, you know, something that only God can do, it will actually, in a, in a sense, it will drive you, right, to throw your, cast yourself on Christ, um, you know, to, to maybe pray more than you had been. At the same time, if it could also make you much worse, Christian, right? It could, if, if you're not actually doing it in the first place, there will be a great temptation to simply play the part. Uh, and, and you just end up kind of a hypocrite with this, you know, you've got a public exterior, but then nothing else behind that. Um, so, but back to, you know, kind of how do you, how do you figure out, you know, what is God calling you to? How do I get involved? Not only in mission in general, but missions, perhaps meaning cross-cultural missions uh, specifically, you know, which, which uh, really there is an emphasis in that in the Great Commission, you know, Jesus doesn't just say, you know, go preach the gospel. He says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, right? To the ends of the earth. Um, so there is, there is also that global aspect to what God calls us to. Um, John Newton, who was a minister who wrote um, Amazing Grace, I think most people would know that song. Um, you know, he wrote a pastoral letter to a young man, uh, a response, uh, who, who this young man asked him, well, how do I know what God is calling me to? How can I be sure? He was considering full-time ministry. And Newton basically answered that there's really kind of three things that, that more or less would comprise God's call. Um, and to summarize those in a, you know, memorable way, you could say it's affinity, ability, and opportunity, uh, which he didn't use, use those exact words in the letter, but affinity meaning your desire, right? Wh where is your heart at? And that's kind of, you know, with my friend who's like, well, if you didn't have to pray, what would you want to do? Um, so there, there is, you know, a very real aspect of that. Um, but Newton warns in the letter, and this is actually kind of what you were mentioning, Nick, that if your primary, if your greatest desire is not Christ himself, that's dangerous. You can't just say, what do I want to do? Because if it's not, if Christ isn't the highest desire, your desires are not going to be shaped by him and you're going to end up going the wrong way. So you don't, this is, this is not the Disney movie philosophy of follow your heart, right? That's not what we're saying. We're saying follow Christ, you know, delight in Christ. And then stop to see, you know, okay, after that, what are the desires of my heart, right? Uh, Psalm, I believe it's 37, you know, the psalmist says, delight yourself in the Lord, and then he'll give you the desires of your heart, right? But there's that first part first. Uh, the second aspect would be ability, right? So what, what does God gifted you to? What is he, what is he, you know, what really works for you? And, and Newton in his letter warns, you know, don't just look at um, you know, what you can do now, but also there's the aspect of, you know, develop whatever he's given you. So it might be that right now you don't have 
tons of ability, but you have, you know, uh, you know, maybe some natural inclinations in areas, develop that, right? Do, do your all to develop those things and see where God takes it. The last point being opportunity, right? Where are the doors open? And, you know, to use your example, Nick, this is kind of like what you were saying. You had a desire maybe to go to Ukraine. And so you got to Hungary, but it's like all the doors were closed. Um, you know, and so kind of you, you took the cue that maybe, maybe God is, is actually directing you in, in a slightly, you know, into a neighboring country, right? To a slightly different place, you know, and, and Newton also actually warns in his letter, you know, um, test doors, you know, check to see if they're open. If you just sit on the couch and you're not checking the doors, you're never going to know which ones are open, right? Somebody's used the analogy of like, it's much easier to steer a car when it's moving, right? To turn or to yeah. turn a ship when a it's boat. moving. Yeah, various, ship, yeah. yeah I've, I've heard various uh, you know, variations on it, um, rather than when it's sitting still. So it's kind of like, you know, go test the waters, you know, take a short term mission trip, check mm -hmm. it out. You're, you're not going to know unless you get out there and start doing things at the same time. Newton warns, don't bust the door down basically. Right. Don't, don't just kind of go against every bit of common sense and like push your way through. Cause that's what you want to do. Yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, kind of those three points, I have found that to be helpful and I've shared that, you know, with, with a number of people, um, you know, with, again, when we have church planners looking at, at joining our training with city to city, it's like, you know, that's one of the first things that we actually talk, talk to them about is those three points. That's really good. Really helpful. Well, Ben, God bless you and God bless your ministry over there. Thank you. And, um, guys be praying for Ben, for his ministry with city to city and Calvary Chapel, Svitlovotsk. Um, be praying about these things in regard to your own life and what it looks like for you to be meaningfully engaged in God's mission. So until next time, remember to like, subscribe, do all those good things, and we'll be with you again soon. God bless.